reveals God not as we might wish him to be, not as we would make him to be, but as he really is. We talked about who do you think the real enemy is, and very clearly it's not other people. We talked in our small group this morning about conflict resolution and being at peace with one another and loving one another too often. Listen, the devil would try to make you think that someone else, another person, is the enemy. Well, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but who do you think the real enemy is? But I want to speak to you this morning about who do you think your real friends are? Listen, we all need friends. And there's our example of so-called friends in the book of Job. And I know immediately when I start talking about who do you think your real friends are, somebody is going to say, well, Jesus is my real friend. Amen. I agree with that. Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. There is no greater example than of a friend than Jesus Christ. But it's sort of like, I heard about a, a young girl, uh, her mother had died and her dad heard her in her bedroom at, in the middle of the night crying. And he went to comfort her and he said to her, you know, she's, she's missing her mom and she, he, she says, I feel so alone. And he said, baby, listen, you know that Jesus is with you. And she said to him, yes, but sometimes I just need somebody with skin on. Every one of us needs somebody with skin on. Somebody who is a real friend who will be a friend. Well, what does a real friend look like? Well, there's some good examples, or is at least one good example. There's some bad examples. One example is Mrs. Job, whose counsel was clouded by her compassion. You see, it says, his wife said to him, I, I called her Mrs. Job. What else would I call her? We, you know, that's the only name that we have for her is Mrs. Job. His wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all of this, Job said nothing wrong. Now I've heard Baptist preachers through the ages give Mrs. Job a hard time. But I think she got a bad rap in their sermons. You need to understand, she had lost all her children too, right? Think about what she had been through. You don't really expect her at that point, John, to give good advice, do you? She has suffered the loss, the same losses, Tim, that, that Job has. Not, not just her children, but her security because all their moneyed possessions have been burned up or stolen, they have lost everything. And so I think she gets a bad rap. We need to cut her a little slack. She was in the middle of grief also. She just was not handling it 
as well as Job was. And so her advice was terrible advice. You see, her compassion overruled her reason. You have to understand, Nita, she was also looking at her husband's suffering. Uh, if I had time, Don, I would go through all the symptoms that are in the book of Job that, that Job was suffering. I've challenged you to read through the book of Job. I promise you, you can read the whole book in 90 minutes time. When you do, and if you have already, do it again. And Roger, look at all the symptoms. He talks about his skin turning dark. He talks about insomnia. He talks about the sores. He, there, there are a lot of symptoms of what Job was going through. And Mrs. Job was seeing her per, poor husband suffer through all of that. And so the advice she gave, Carol, was based on her compassion. I can't stand to see you suffer anymore. I would rather lose you too than to see you suffer any longer. I'm not saying that's good advice. I'm just saying cut her a little slack because her compassion for her husband overruled her reason. And so her answer, her advice was just take the easy way out. By the way, what she said revealed Noah a great deal about what she believed about God. If you'll just curse God, He'll kill you for it. And then all this suffering will be over. That's terrible theology, and it's also terrible advice. That's called suicide, and suicide is always a permanent answer to a temporary problem. And it is no solution at all. But get this, if you've ever con contemplated suicide, understand the point of the book of Job. Why was Job suffering? It was not because he did anything wrong. It was not. Don't let any preacher, anytime, anywhere lie to you and tell you Job deserved what he was getting because he had sinned. Job was suffering for one purpose only, and that was to show his faith in God and Julie to glorify God. So what happens to that glorifying God, Becky, if he commits suicide? He is bailing out of God's plan for his life, and he is short-circuiting the glory of God for what God was going to do. Don't ever bail out on God's plan and don't ever bail out on the glory that God intends to have from your life. Well, the other examples then. Who do you think your real friends are? Well, there are these guys, Eliphad, Bildad, and Zophar, whose counsel was also confused, but their counsel was confused by their religion whose counsel, I say this again because some of you are writing and you fussed at me about going so fast that you can't fill out the blanks when I tell you to, so there you go. Had enough time yet? Do I need to dally a little longer? Confused by their religion. For one thing, they could not handle Job's expression of grief. You see, they 
were, they cared about Job. It says, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. By the way, that's a good view of culture in that day. Hadn't seen that at the funeral recently, but that was culture in their day. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. They started well because they sat with him to comfort him. They wept with him. They mourned with him. And they gave him no advice for seven days. By the way, that's chapter 2. In chapter 3, Job unloads. He expresses his grief. If you're going through grief, it's okay to unload on God. He can handle it. I said that in the very first sermon. God is big enough to handle your complaints. He is who He is, and He is not threatened when we unload our grief and our frustration on Him. He can handle it. And if you're going through grief, it's better for you to express that grief than it is to internalize it and let it eat you alive. A part of the process, the grieving process, is to express the loss. The problem is, if you didn't manage to fill in the blank, they could not handle Job's expression of grief. He unloads in chapter 3, and they immediately forgot all the good that they had done. Becky had been great if they'd kept their mouth shut for another seven days. But instead, they could not handle his expression of grief, and they, still, they felt obligated to answer the question of why. Why has God done this? Why is this happening to me? I've got news for you. God does not always tell us why He's doing something. And it is very dangerous to try to answer the question of why. Who is the counselor of God? And who gives Him advice? Not I. And listen, if you are trying to answer for someone else why God is doing something in their lives, you better remember you're not God. And you don't know why God's doing what He's doing. Now I want to repeat something for the third time. I think I've said this now in all three sermons. If something's going on in your life and you wonder, am I being punished by God is this bad happening in my life because I've done something bad? 
If you don't know that for sure, that is not the case. The Spirit of God, Jesus said, would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. If you're, John, if you're being punished for something you've done bad, you'll know it. The Spirit of God will make sure of that. He will convict you of that sin. He'll let you know what you've done so that you can repent. God is not capricious. He doesn't just throw bad our way for the fun of it. He has a reason. He has a purpose. But Roger, he's not obligated to tell us what that reason is, what that purpose is. I remember very well, Rodney, that I said in that first sermon that throughout the book of Job, there is no time that God explains to Job what's going on. Nowhere in the book does He do that. God is not obligated to tell us why He does what He's doing. And we better be careful about playing God and trying to figure out why He's doing it, especially if it's some, in somebody else's life. Don't you do that. Part of the problem with them, not only did it, they couldn't handle the grieving process, and they felt obligated to answer the question of why. But for another thing, their religion was pure legalism. It was legalism. Uh, what does that mean? I've, I've discovered that theologically there is a misunderstanding of what legalism is. Peter, would you give me just a little bit more on the monitors? Thank you. There's a misunderstanding of what legalism is. Some people think that legalism is just you have to earn your salvation. If I will follow the rules, then I'll be saved. Legalism is a lot deeper than that. Legalism says bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things only happen to bad people. Good things don't happen to bad people. Only bad things happen to bad people. Shelly, you know what the result of that is? If something's bad, something bad is happening to you, it means you have sinned and you're being punished. And if you would just repent, then all the bad in your life will go away. If you are a legalist, I don't want you at my house when something bad's going on. Legalists make rotten friends. Jerry Chandler told me, Julie, Jerry told me that when he almost cut his leg off, you, you know the story, turned the lawnmower over and, and almost cut his leg off. He was pastor of a church in Kentucky. He had people who came to him and said, Jerry, have you figured out what you were doing wrong that God had to do this to you? Get lost. I don't need your help with friends like you who needs enemies. By the way, that's book of Job's where that came from. Did you know that? With friends like you who needs enemies. They spent the whole book. Do you recall that I told you in the beginning that if you will read chapter 42, go ahead and read Job chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, but before you read anything that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar said, 
before you read anything they say, skip over and read the end of the book. Because in chapter 42, verses 7 through 10 or 6 through 10, he says, you guys are full of it. Well, that's translation according to Lynn. You have not said what's true of me as Job has. I hear, Charles, I hear people preaching from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and I cringe. God Himself said, don't pay any attention to what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar said. You won't hear me preaching sermons from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Because they had it wrong. Absolutely had it wrong. With friends like those, Carl, who needs enemies, right? You've already got them. They're not friends. They are not real friends. So who do you think your real friends are? Well, there's a young guy, Elihu or Elihu, depends on whether you're from Africa or U.S., but Elihu who felt compelled to intrude. Now, why do I say intrude? He's been standing there a while. So this is another key for you to understand when you read the book. Notice that when you get to chapter 35-36 where Elihu begins to speak, it indicates he had been standing there and listening. took me a long time to figure out, reading this book again and again, John, people say, well, God never rebuked and Job never rebuked Elihu. Job rebuked Elihu before he ever spoke. He said, there are young men standing here whose fathers I wouldn't even put with my sheep. And they spit at me and they curse at me. Elihu was standing there, Terry, making faces at Job the whole time Job was speaking. And Job rebuked him before he ever spoke. But he felt compelled to intrude Anyway, he said, you guys are old, and so I let you speak first. And I'm a young man, and I probably shouldn't say anything. He should have stopped right then. Because he was right. Should have stopped right then. But he just felt compelled to speak. Says then, Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job. See, there it is. He's been there the, the whole time. He had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. That's four times. Did you get that? He was four times angry. When you are that mad, my advice is keep your mouth shut. Nothing, is nothing good is going to come out of your mouth if you're that mad, you're that angry. Go take a walk. Don't go kick the dog. He didn't do anything. 
Go get some fresh air. Take a walk. But keep your mouth shut. You see, He spoke in anger. And nothing good comes from angry speech. I have had to apologize to Brenda Rayburn so many times because I spoke in anger. Just be quiet. He spoke in anger. Not only that, but he spoke in arrogance. He said, get this, be silent and I will teach you wisdom. You know, Job is considered one of the books of wisdom in the Bible. And the wisdom did not come from Eliphaz. The wisdom did not come from Bildad. The wisdom did not come from Zophar. And despite what he said, neither did the wisdom come from Elihu. I had a friend live next to me, one of my mentors in missions, it's Harold Williams. Harold had a guy, I don't remember the guy's name, um, who, who mowed his grass. One day I was walking across the, the street there to see if Harold was home and visit with him, have a cup of coffee maybe. Harold wasn't there, but I struck up, stroke up, <laughs> I struck up a conversation with the, the lawnmower guy. And in, in the process, Taylor, he said to me, you know, I don't know if Harold has told you, but I am very intelligent. <laughs> Mark my word, if somebody tells you they're very intelligent, they're not. And Elihu said, I am very intelligent. You have not marshaled your arguments against me. Someone with perfect wisdom is here with you. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. The problem is, he also spoke in error. You see, he was mad at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Okay, just throw it out. Trying to get you to read the book. It'll help you to understand that once Job speaks in chapter 3, from that point on, each of the three, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, speak three times. And you, that's the outline of the book. They speak three times, and every time Job answers them. Except, there is an exception to that, Bildad... Every one of them sort of wind down. By the way, they get wilder and wilder with their accusations at Job. At one point, Job says to Eliphaz, Bill, Dad, and so far, you're a bunch of quacks. That, that is one of the translations. I didn't make that up. He said, you're a bunch of quacks. And you'd be better off if you'd just keep your mouth shut. Bildad concludes his second speech, or his third speech, I'm sorry, three speeches each. Bildad concludes his speech with the foundation of worm theology. We're just worms. I don't believe worm theology. I believe we're made in the image and likeness of God. And God loves us. Jesus died for us. You matter to God. 
And you have value to God. But Bildad's concluded his third speech with, You're just, we're just worms. Zophar was so discouraged, he didn't speak the third time. That's the exception. Zophar did not give his third speech. Instead, Elihu had had all he could handle, and he jumped in. Remember that he was mad because they had not convinced Job that he was guilty. By the way, why had he not convinced Job that he was guilty? Because he wasn't guilty. So Elihu jumps in, he says, I'll teach you wisdom. And he came to the same conclusion that the other men had. Now some people have said Elihu, because God didn't rebuke him, that Elihu was right. Elihu said Job was a wicked man who adds rebellion to his sin. He was wrong. So why did God ignore him? Well, Elihu said very clearly, remember that this is an Eastern culture book. The Bible is Eastern culture, it's not Western culture. And in Eastern culture, when some brash young man shows up, opens his mouth, when he ought to be silent, you ignore him. And so God paid no attention to Elihu. By the way, Don, I think there's another reason. I've read the book enough. You know, he spoke so long, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second. He spoke so long, he preached up a storm. Literally. He preached up a storm. The end of, the, of his speech has... He, he spoke with an abundance of word and he starts talking about clouds and thunder and lightning and hail and snow and there's a storm coming up. And then God spoke out of the storm. Don, I don't think Elihu stayed around after that. I think when God showed up and God spoke, Elihu was missing in action. But he was wrong. He spoke in anger. He spoke in arrogance. He spoke in error and he spoke in abundance of words. Six chapters. Now don't let that keep you from reading the book. Six chapters. Like some preacher preaching his first sermon, Jacob. Goes on and on and on. Gets excited by the sound of his own voice. And I better quit or I'll, you'll say that's what I'm doing. He spoke... He spoke with an abundance of words. Listen, in Eastern culture, they say, listen to the old men. I'm serious. Listen to the old men. The trouble is, Kim, they were wrong. They absolutely got it wrong. In Western culture, that's our culture, we say, never mind the old men. You're supposed to listen to young men. Come on. That's what they say in our culture today. Listen to the young people. Trouble is, the young man was wrong too. And if you don't get anything else, understand that what the book of Job is all about, you don't listen to the old men. You don't just listen to the young men. You better listen to God. God knows what He's saying. God knows what He's on about. Listen to what God has to say about your life. So who do you think your real friend is? You know what? 
In the book of Job, there's only one real friend. And it was Job himself. You know, somewhere along the way, nobody ever told me this, but reading through and reading through, I, I sat down in August of 2007 before the International Missionary Retreat, Julie, when I preached a series on Job. I sat down and read Job three times in three days. One of the things that I saw in the book I had never seen before, I've never heard anybody else say this, but none of Job's friends ever prayed for him. Never in the book. I've now read the book of Job well over a hundred times. And there's not a single place where Job's friends prayed for Job. They talked to Job about God, but they never talked to God about Job. I praise God for those of you who are praying for me. I praise God for those you ladies who are praying for Mrs. Brenda, Mrs. Lynn, Mrs. Preacher, Mrs. Pastor. Praise God for people who are talking to God about us. Because that's what real friends do. And Job was the only real friend in the crowd. You, in the crowd. you see, Job did not want revenge. Job chapter 42, verse 8, I've told you to read these verses, says, My servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. By the way, I don't know what God had put on them, but they were sick and needed healing, and God was not going to heal them until Job prayed for them. Now, I hate to admit that I thought this way, but Tracy, I thought if God said that to me, and I'm Job, I'm afraid, Kim, I would have said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. How about this time next year? Right? Come on. They had run him ragged. They had talked him up and down. He was sick of them, and God says, pray for them, and I'll heal them. I'll get around to that. But you're going to wait a while. Oh, come on. But Job didn't want any revenge. He was forgiving. He was kind. And the truth is, Job was the only friend, real friend, in the whole book. At least the only one with skin on. He didn't want revenge. He prayed for his friends. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Now don't legalize that. Don't make it, Job had done something bad, so God punished him. And when he finally did what he ought to do, Job made, uh, God made things right for Job. That's not the message. But I will tell you, there is a blessing when you let go of anger and 
seek no revenge, and you pray for those who deserve no prayer. Everybody needs a friend with skin on. And in the book of Job, only Job is an example of a real friend with skin on. Everyone needs a friend with skin on. I want to finish my message as I always do with an invitation. But listen to me. This is true for those of you who are watching online as well. An invitation usually means saying, if you've never been saved, you need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean that in this invitation too.